You're listening to the Study Legal English Podcast, the world's first legal English podcast, helping lawyers and law students become fluent in legal English. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Study Legal English podcast. I am your host Louise and today's episode is an introduction to human rights law. This episode is part of the English Legal System Module 2 Sources of Law course which you can find on the Study Legal English website. In the next episode we'll be looking at international law So I have a question for you. What do you like or dislike about international law? Maybe you're studying about international law at the moment, or maybe you work with international law, perhaps in the public sphere, or ensuring that companies comply with international law. Either way, let me know your thoughts by going to studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 38 And at the bottom of the page, you can leave a comment or, of course, you can send me an email to info at studylegalenglish.com. So let's get started. Following World War II, a number of regional and international intergovernmental organisations were founded and a number of conventions and treaties signed in order to try to prevent such atrocities as those which occurred in World War II from ever happening again. There was the founding of the United Nations in 1945, the founding of the European Coal and Steel Community in 1951, and the European Economic Community in 1957, from which we can trace the origins of the European Union. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948, and the first instrument to give legal effect to this was the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, also simply known as the Convention. This was drafted in 1950 by the Council of Europe and entered into force in 1953, later becoming known as the European Convention on Human Rights. Since this time, it has been amended by a number of protocols and implemented into national law, for example in the UK by the Human Rights Act 1998. The Convention is aimed at protecting key human rights and fundamental freedoms of all people within the 47 Council of Europe member states and preventing human rights violations by states. Now, although it sounds like it's a treaty of the European Union, it must be clearly noted that it is not. The Convention was drafted by the Council of Europe, as already mentioned, which is not a European Union institution. Although, yes, it is quite easy to confuse it with, mm, let's say, the oh-so-clearly-named two separate European Union institutions, which are the European Council and the Council of the European Union. Yes, completely separate bodies. Firstly, in relation to the Human Rights Convention, 
The Council of Europe is an international institution aimed at upholding human rights, democracy, and the rule of law amongst Council of Europe member states, which includes all 28 EU member states as well as states which are not European Union member states, for example, Turkey and Russia. The Council of Europe cannot make binding law. And the decisions of its court, the European Court of Human Rights, are also not strictly legally binding. Whereas, perhaps you remember from episode 35 of the podcast about European institutions, the European Council is responsible for the overall political direction of the EU, and the Council of the European Union is part of the bicameral legislature of the EU. So it's important to make that distinction. Therefore, if you are thinking, so does Brexit mean that the UK will also leave the convention? No, it doesn't. The convention is entirely separate to the EU, and although the EU withdrawal bill is likely to exclude the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, which is an EU charter. And is broader than the European Convention on Human Rights. The UK will not automatically be leaving the European Convention on Human Rights. To leave the Convention, the UK would need to revoke its signature and repeal the Human Rights Act 1998. So let's move on and discuss what is the Convention. The Convention grants certain rights and fundamental freedoms to citizens of the 47 Council of Europe member states, and the member states are obligated under Article 1 to secure to everyone within their jurisdiction the rights and freedoms defined in the Convention. If the state fails to secure these rights, or indeed is in breach of these rights, Then an individual can bring a claim either in their national court or to the European Court of Human Rights. Although the Convention does not distinguish between different types of rights, we can actually see that three main types of rights exist. These are absolute, limited, and qualified. These differ in their application, and how they do apply has been developed over time through the courts. Firstly, absolute rights must be protected at all costs and cannot be limited in any way. Examples include Article 2, the right to life, Article 3, freedom from torture, Article 4, Freedom from slavery, and Article 7, freedom from punishment without law. Secondly, limited rights are ones that do not allow explicit derogation or interference, but they may be lawfully restricted. For example, the right to liberty under Article 5. We are, of course, free to do most things, but of course not things which are against the law. And someone can limit our freedom by arresting us if we break the law, and of course send us to jail. 
That is a legitimate limit on our right to liberty. Another example is Article 6, the right to fair trial, which may be restricted by, for example, giving a time limit on bringing a legal action or from prohibiting public or press attendance to a hearing if it is in the national interest. Thirdly, qualified rights are those where interference is permitted by governments provided that the interference is proportionate to the legitimate aims pursued. For example, under Article 8, your right to respect for private and family life may be limited if you break the law and the newspapers want to report about the crime. Other qualified rights include Article 9, freedom of thought, conscience and religion, Article 10, freedom of expression, Article 11, freedom of assembly and association, and Article 12, freedom to marry. So let's look at how the rights are protected in the UK. The UK became a signatory of the Convention in 1950, and for a long time, citizens seeking redress for human rights violations had to bring a case in the European Court of Human Rights, which sits in Strasbourg. However, following the enactment of the Human Rights Act 1998, which entered into force in the year 2000, the convention rights were enshrined in national law. Under Section 6 of the Human Rights Act 1998, if a public authority, including courts, tribunals, private individuals or organisations performing public functions, has violated any convention right or acted in a way which is incompatible to such right, then the individual affected who is considered a victim under Section 7 of the Human Rights Act 1998, will have standing to bring a claim directly in the UK courts. Action begins in the High Court, with the option of submitting a case to the European Court of Human Rights only after exhausting domestic remedies. In the case of the UK, this means that the case must go on appeal to the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court before reaching the European Court of Human Rights. When a case is brought in the National Court, the Court will consider whether there has indeed been a violation of a human right and, if we're talking in terms of a qualified right, whether the limitation or derogation was a valid one according to Section 14 of the Human Rights Act 1998. In deciding whether the derogation was valid, the courts use the doctrine of proportionality, aiming to strike a balance between the limitation of a right on the one hand and, on the other hand, the protection of citizens as a whole. Looking at whether the derogation was proportionate to achieve the legitimate aim, this test was set out in the Queen on the application of Daly against the Secretary of State for the Home Department in 2001, in which an act is considered proportionate if 
Firstly, the legislative objective is sufficiently important to justify the limitation of the right. Secondly, the measures taken to meet the objective are connected to it. And thirdly, the means used to meet the objective are no more than is necessary to meet the objective. However, the court may not have the relevant expertise to decide whether the derogation was indeed a valid or legitimate one, and in these circumstances, it employs another tool known as judicial deference. Here, the court will automatically defer or, in other words, find in favour of the public body. When deciding cases, the UK courts must, under Section 2 of the Human Rights Act 1998, take into account the past cases of the European Court of Human Rights. It must be stressed that the court is not bound by them, Therefore, we can say that the European Court of Human Rights does not create binding precedent, but instead highly persuasive precedent. However, in reality, the courts should, according to what has become known as the mirror principle, follow the clear and constant jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, as stated by Lord Bingham in the case of the Queen on the application of ULA against the Special Adjudicator in 2004. Furthermore, moving on, Section 3 places an obligation on the courts to interpret primary and secondary legislation, so far as it is possible to do so, to be compatible with convention rights. This provides the judiciary with a quasi-legislative function, allowing the courts to essentially interpret law in line with the Convention and not in line with Parliament's will. In reality, this power is exercised with great caution and mainly judges respect the role of Parliament as the ultimate lawmaker and of course avoid an interpretation of the law which would, in effect, create a brand new law. In the event that the court is unable to interpret a law in a way which makes it compatible with the Convention, Section 4 gives courts the power to make a declaration of incompatibility. This is a weapon of last resort, as it was referred to in the case of Bellinger against Bellinger in 2003. And although courts can make such a declaration, they do not have the power to set aside an Act of Parliament in the way that it can do so when a national law is in conflict with a European law. When the court sets aside a law, it still remains in force and valid, and it is up to Parliament to repeal or amend the law or simply ignore the judgment. If the government believes, however, that it is necessary to change the law, a government minister has the power under Section 10 of the Human Rights Act 1998 to make a remedial order to make the changes required in order to make the law compatible with human rights. And the amendments which are proposed go through a fast-track parliamentary procedure instead of requiring the full legislative procedure. And so what happens if the court finds that a public authority has violated a human right? 
Well, if the court finds this, then the court may grant relief or remedies or make an order in the way it sees fit, as defined under Section 8 of the Human Rights Act 1998. And what about the Human Rights Act in terms of the legislative-making process? Well, the Human Rights Act has impacted this process. Section 19 provides that the relevant minister in charge of a bill must either make a statement of compatibility or incompatibility with the Convention before the second reading of the bill. This is a procedural mechanism which aims to protect Convention rights. However, ultimately, Parliament may go ahead and pass an incompatible act due to the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. So, is the Convention important? Of course the Convention is important, but with regards to the UK, the Human Rights Act 1998 is incredibly important and has been hailed as one of the most important pieces of UK legislation this century. But why so? Well, because the UK, unlike most other democratic countries around the world, does not protect civil rights through a National Bill of Rights or a written constitution. These are higher sources of law than a normal Act of Parliament because they are normally entrenched, and by that I mean it is far more difficult, if not impossible, to amend these types of laws. In the UK, instead, however, over time, various laws have developed either via case law or statute, and now there is the general presumption that citizens are free to do whatever they want unless it is prohibited by law. But of course this method fails to protect rights adequately. Instead, the Human Rights Act 1998 provides far better protection, and yet it can still be said that it is still not a Bill of Rights. It can arguably be repealed at the will of Parliament, just as any other law in the UK. It is not entrenched in our legal system, and in fact it has for many years been under threat. The Conservative government in their 2015 manifesto did pledge to replace the Human Rights Act with a British Bill of Rights on the grounds that they wished to make our own Supreme Court the ultimate arbiter of human rights matters in the UK. On the one hand, on the side of abolishing the Human Rights Act and replacing it with a British Bill of Rights, there are those that argue for taking back power and control. And on the other side, the side for keeping the Human Rights Act, they criticise the idea of abolishing the Human Rights Act and replacing it with a British Bill of Rights because they view this as fundamentally a symbolic and pointless action. If the UK fundamentally agrees with the Convention, the Human Rights Convention, then what is the point of revoking our signature and simply replacing it with a Bill of Rights?
at least for now, it seems the UK will remain a party to the convention. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Next time, we'll be looking at international law as a source of law in the UK. So I have a question for you, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. What do you like or dislike about international law? You can leave your comments at studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 37. At the bottom of the page, you can find a place to leave both audio or written comments. Or, of course, just send me an email to info at studylegalenglish.com. Don't forget to learn the vocabulary from this week's episode via the vocabulary lists and quizzes as a podcast pro member, where you can also practice your pronunciation via the speak module. So thank you so much for listening and see you next time.